we've been studying about prevailing prayer. And I, I just was, again, while things go off in me when we're in praise and worship, and uh, we've been focusing on Sunday mornings on worship, true worship. And we've been st- studying on Wednesday nights about prevailing prayer. And these are perhaps the two most important things I believe a pastor can lead God's people into, including himself, because we're on a journey in these things together. Because in both of those, in worship and in prayer, we're learning how to have a connection with the true and the living God. And if you can learn how to have a living connection with the true and living God, everything you need will be taken care of. Every direction you're ever going to need, every provision you're ever going to need, that's the, blessed, the only place to go to for what we need is to Him. And through worship and prayer, we learn how to come to Him and not just be with Him, but to accomplish something. And so that's why we're, this is so important. These are the two most important things I believe that we can, we can as a pastor, that I can teach you about and together because I'm not teaching you something I've mastered. We're on a journey together to learn these things together. And, and so, so it's exciting because Jesus has promised to be our teacher. And so I just wanted to share that with you. also want to read to you a testimony because we've been asking for testimonies. I read this last night in at our prayer meeting on Tuesday night. And I'm looking specifically for testimonies of people that have had a prayer that was, that was put in, a prayer request that was put in on Tuesday night. And this, this was one that we, I found last night. It says, two weeks ago today, and there's no date on this, so uh, we prayed for somebody who was pregnant and had, three, had had three miscarriages. And the baby was due at the end of May. Three hours after we prayed, she had the baby born, born six weeks premature. The doctor said the baby would weigh five pounds, but he was born at five, four pounds, but he was born at five pounds, two ounces. Uh, two day, at two days old, he pulled out the IV out of his arm, this is the baby, and was the feeding tube out of his nose and started breastfeeding at three days old. He may be going home this Wednesday, and then there's a note at the bottom, the baby came home today. God hears and answers prayer. God hears and answers our prayers. God hears and answers your prayers. The enemy wants to come and rob you of confidence, but God hears and answers our prayers. He hears and answers our prayers. Jesus' disciples came to him at one point it's in our. It's in. Uh, it's in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter uh, six, I think it is. And they said to him, they, because in in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus had been at the at the end of chapter four. He's with a large crowd. He's just healed a multitude of people, and then he says he withdrew up on the mountain, and his disciples followed him. So we call that the Sermon on the Mount, and it is. But he's not preaching to thousands. He's talking to a staff. And, and they come to him after he shares some things. They said, Lord, teach us to pray. Rabbis, as they were calling him at the time, rabbis had their different style of prayer, and, and their, he would, they would teach their disciples their method of prayer. But there was something they saw about Jesus that was distinctive, something that they saw about him that stirred up in them a desire to have what he had and to do what he did. And what they saw about him, I believe, is his prayers were answered. What they saw about him was a confidence in the way he prayed that was different than the way the rabbis prayed. 
I've been in churches where people prayed like those rabbis prayed, where they said what Brother Hagin used to call the perpendicular prayers. Thou, O Lord God, the mighty God of the heavens, these high resounding sounds, but there's no faith in them. There's no confidence in them. You can tell when somebody's praying and they know who they're talking to. You can tell when somebody's praying and you know they've got a relationship with God of such a nature that, they're, that they know God's hearing. They saw something about Jesus and we get an insight into this in John chapter 11 because Jesus is standing at the tomb of Lazarus and he, before he says anything, he, he, we know what he's come there to do. He knows what he's come there to do, which is to raise Lazarus from the dead after being in the grave four days. But Jesus, and this is really the only time I can remember he does that, he talks out loud to the Father about what he's going to do. Now, we have a record of several of his prayers to the Father, but, it, but this is where he's going to pray for something to happen. And he says in John chapter 11, Father, I'm asking you out loud because I want them to know I want them to know that you hear me, that, you are gonna, that you're the one that's doing this because I know you always answer my prayers. Jesus said, I know, I'm confident that you always answer my prayers. But I'm saying this one out loud so they'll know when this happened, you did this and not me. And then he spoke to Lazarus to come forth. Say, well, that's Jesus. Of course he had confidence when he prayed. But he taught his disciples to have the same confidence. Because they said to him, Lord, teach us to pray the way you do to get results. And Jesus said, our Father who art in heaven. You look through that prayer, and he's not so much telling us what to pray, but the attitude of prayer that he had. There was a confidence in the way he prayed. There's a confidence in the Lord's prayer. Of course, we've turned it into a vain repetitious prayer, which is the very thing he told us not to do. Now we're going over to James, and this is our key scripture. James chapter 5. So this is in the New Testament. Verse 14, he says, If any among you are sick, let him call for the elders of the church, let them pray over him, anointing him with the oil in the name of the Lord, and the prayer of faith might save the sick. No, it will save the sick. Notice it's not the anointing of oil. It's the prayer of faith. We'll save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Confess your trespasses to one another. Pray for one another. That's what we're learning how to do. That you may be healed. Not that it might happen, that you may be healed. And this is the verse, we're looking part of the verse. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails or accomplishes much. And then he goes into verse 17 and gives us an example. Elijah was a man of like nature as ours. We had flesh and blood. He was a human being. We're not not talking about Jesus. We're talking about Elijah, an Old Testament prophet. And, And James is using him as an example and says he was a man just like us. And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it didn't rain in the land for three years and six months. He prayed again that the heavens gave rain and the earth produced its fruit. We've been looking at some basic principles of prayer. And the first principle we looked at is you have to believe that God's going to answer your prayer when you pray. And I was about to get into the next principle, and I just didn't feel right about it. And as I was looking at my notes and things like that, I really sensed we need to go back a step and look at the foundation of prayer about why do we need to pray anyway. I mean, well, of course we need to pray. Well, let's think about that a second. Is God sovereign? 
I mean, God's, God doesn't need anybody's help. He's sovereign, and what we've been looking at, He's all-powerful. There's nothing that's impossible with God. In fact, we learned last time, which was two weeks ago, there's nothing even hard for God. So if God's sovereign, He can do what He wants, and God's all-powerful, why does He need us to pray? Now, especially considering this, that one of the limitations of prayer is that we have to be sure that whatever we're praying is within the boundaries of His will. Because we don't, can't have confidence to come to God and ask Him for something that's outside the boundaries of God's will. So He's not going to give you something that's illegal or immoral, maybe fattening, but not illegal or immoral. God's not going to, you know, do something that's wrong. It's going to violate His Word. So there is a boundary on what God will do. It's for the boundary of His will. And I was thinking about this today. Wait a minute. Just stop and think about this. If the only things we can ask for are within the boundaries of His will, and by the way, that's a huge boundary. That's an enormous boundary. And we don't have to guess about what it is because He gave us a book that tells us what it is. And we'll look at that down the road. So if we've got this big boundary of God's will, and God, God is all-powerful, and God is sovereign because He can do what He wants, then why does He need us to pray? Did you ever think about that? I mean, that's an important question to ask, because if you don't understand this, you will not understand why it's urgent that we pray over situations. We say, well, God will take care of that. It's going to work out okay. And when I studied the Scriptures and I saw what the Scriptures had to say, I realized it's critical in cases that we pray. God needs us to pray. In fact, uh, John Wesley or maybe it's Charles, one of the Wesleys wrote this comment. It says, it seems almost as if God cannot move in the earth unless someone prays. God cannot move in the earth. It seems like that. Well, I'm going to show you tonight, or we're going to begin to look tonight. That's the truth. We're going to go through and trace why God needs us to pray, why God cannot move. Now, there are exceptions. There are situations where God just sovereignly does something. But I, I suspect that even in those cases, if we knew everything, we would find somewhere someone's praying. Somewhere someone's praying. Because the Spirit of God will go throughout the land trying to find somebody who's open to pray about a situation that they may not know anything about. And some of you are here tonight because it wasn't... A, I'm, I'm not here tonight. I don't believe I had a relative in my family that was saved at the time I was saved. Not that I know of. So it most likely wasn't any of my relatives that I knew of. So it was somebody that I didn't know that God had praying for me. And so, so there are others of us that are here tonight. We're in the body of Christ because somebody prayed that you don't know and they didn't know you, but God, the Spirit of God found them. So I, I'm not even necessarily willing to categorically say that even there are situations where God just does something and we don't know whether and nobody prayed because there may well have been somebody that was praying, and we don't need to get into the details of that. So why, why does God need... I mean, I'm talking about wants us. He needs us to pray. Why is it critical? We're, we're talking about things God wants us to, wants to do. See, prayer is not talking God into doing something that He doesn't want to do and changing His mind. Prayer is not talking to God about something He's just eh, kind of lukewarm about and, and firing Him up about it. Because we've already looked at scriptures where God's trying to fire us up about it. See, the scene is God is moved by a situation. 
He sees a need. He sees, in fact, when our eyes are really open, we're going to realize that God feels the pain of the lost. God sees where they're headed. God's heart's breaking for the lost. Jesus cried over Jerusalem. Standing outside of Jerusalem, he wept over Jerusalem because he saw how lost it was. He could sense all that the God's heart, his father's heart, towards Jerusalem, who he'd sent prophet after prophet after prophet to, and they'd killed the prophets consistently. They'd rejected the prophets. They hadn't listened to the prophets. And he was feeling his father's heart crying and weeping over Jerusalem and the lost state of that city and the souls that were in it. God the Father. His heart and His passion is He cares for the lost. He cares for the hurting. He cares for people. And He desperately wants to move in their situation. And He can't unless we authorize Him to move. So He goes around trying to find somebody that He can get to move. So prayer is not crying out to God trying to get His attention. He's trying to get our attention so that we'll simply open our mouth so he can do what he wants to do. I mean, I'm, I'm standing here today as a living example of that. Because when, 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 when God was coming after me to, 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 so that I would come to him, I ran from him, fought him. I was stubborn, hard-headed. And it wasn't because I was just, I was afraid. And he kept pursuing me. And I know it's because people were praying for me. In fact, some of the people at that time I knew because I'd met them were praying for me. And for months I resisted him. And I'd find books and they would convict me and I'd get a little more comfortable and then I'd get fearful. And then one night, and you've heard, most of you heard me tell this testimony, one night in my living room, I just couldn't handle it anymore. And my family was in bed, I don't know, it was about 11.30, 12 o'clock at night. And I said, God, I can't do this anymore. I don't know what's going on, but I can't handle this anymore. And all of a sudden, I saw the problem. And this was the grace of the Holy Spirit. What I saw was I was, more af- I was afraid to find out that Jesus wasn't real. And suddenly I saw I would be better off finding out that he wasn't real than living under this agony for the rest of my life. I, I gave you that background because here was my great prayer of faith. Jesus... I don't know whether you're real or not. I really don't know. And I'm almost scared to find out. But if you are, I'll ask you into my life. Isn't that gracious of me? Isn't that a statement of great faith? But it was honest. I don't know whether you're real or not, but I can't stand going on like this anymore, so I've got to find out. I don't know if you're real or not, but if you are, Here's your shot. And he flooded into me. And I've shared later on, there was a time a number of years ago where I was in prayer about this, just going back over. And the Lord showed me, he said, do you see what you did? He said, all you did is you opened the door to your heart a crack. You didn't throw it wide open and say, come in. You just opened it a crack. You're still protecting yourself in case I wasn't real. You just opened it a crack. But when you gave me that crack, when you gave me that open, what did I do? I flooded in the opening that you gave me. Why? Because I was outside knocking at the door of your heart and of your life. And that's where he is with us for prayer. Needs that we have, needs that our family has, needs that people have in our neighborhood, needs that pe- we don't even know about have, and God's trying to knock it open a little bit. Just open. Give me a chance to come in. Just give me a chance that I can use you. 
But it's hard for us to grasp that and understand that. So we're going to begin to look. We won't finish this tonight. But we'll begin to look at this to understand why, why is it that God needs us to prayer, pray? Why is it that He needs our permission before He can move in this world? Again, you know, if God's sovereign, then, and he's in, then He must be in control. But that's not necessarily true. So many people assume that because God's sovereign, God's in control of the earth. Well, if God's in control of the earth, He's doing a lousy job. I mean, if you watch the news lately, it's not getting better. If God's in control, either He doesn't care, which is what a lot of people think. That's what the deists think. Deism was very popular in the Age of Enlightenment, and it's still around today, which basically teaches that there's a God, there's a Creator, but He's uninvolved. He created everything and then just kind of sat back and says, let me know when you're done. And they, get, they, 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 they come to that conclusion in part because they don't see what, what a caring God would be like and then this world doesn't line up to that. But see, they've never read their Bible, obviously. And people that teach that have really never led, read their Bible. And there, there are good-meaning Christians out there, and some of them that I read after them, but I have to sift some things out. You know, some people you read after, you've, you've got to kind of sort out truth from error. That's why you need to know your own Bible and what your Bible says, and think for yourself. And there's some people I read after, and they, when, boy, when they hit it, they're good. But sometimes I'll basically say, whatever happens in your life, God has brought it into your life to teach you something. They need to read their Bible. Let's, in fact, let's read our Bible, okay? Is that good to do? Let's go, back, let's go to Genesis chapter 1. Let's go to Genesis chapter 1. Would you like to learn why God needs us to pray? Why it's critical. All right, I'm going to teach Jerry because he's the only one that seems to want to know. <laughs> All right, now I know the rest of you are turning. This is the story of creation, Genesis chapter 1. Verse 26, Then Lord God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. The our is plural, because it's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And let them, the them is because the term man there, Adam is plural. And at that time, God had man, the man and woman, combined together in one being. So Adam, which means man, is the fullness of God, and it's plural. And, and later on in chapter 2, he divides them into two separate bodies. And we're not going to get into that. Don't get hung up on that. Let them have dominion. That, is a, that word means authority. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Exercise dominion and authority over the earth. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, see, I have given you 
every herb that yields seeds on the face of the earth and every tree whose fruit yields seeds, that it shall be food for you. It shall serve you in carrying out your purposes. And then he goes down in chapter 2, verse 19. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam, Adam, to see what Adam would name them. And what Adam, whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. Stop there a second. Some of you may have had this experience that have had children, and we've had it. When you have your children, one of the issues is what are you going to name you're going to call them? That's an important issue because they're going to go by that the rest of their life. And in many families, you know, our, our loving parents, when we're a parent, have their own ideas. In some cases, they're a little more forceful about them. In some cases, they're suggestions. Now, our parents didn't do this to us, but I've known of some that have that they want to impose, they have their own idea of what you ought to name your children. And here's, here's the answer. They have a right to give you their opinion, but you're the one that conceived them and you're the one that bore them, and therefore they're your children and you have the right to name them. And I went through that exercise to tell you that the person that has the right to name is the one that has the authority over the situation. Mom and Dad, thank you for your suggestion we will entertain it. But we will decide what we will name our son or our daughter because we went through the sweat and blood to, to conceive them and to bear them. And that you named us, you got the right to choose us, but we have the right to choose them. Why? Because we have the authority in this family and that's not where your authority extends. That same applies here. Now listen to what God did here. God is the source of all life. God has now delegated to His man in the earth His own authority over the earth. God has... In fact, here's what I'm going to do. I have a little slideshow. See if we can get this to work. This is out of a teaching I did years ago in School of Ministry. But I found it today and it will help to see what we're going to go here. Okay, so there we've got God the Father. Everybody with me? All right. Now, what, we, what we, we're not going to spend a lot of time on here is within, and we've learned this in Renewing the Mind, within the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, there's an order of authority. And I don't have time to go through all the scriptures, but God the Father gave authority to God the Son. And if you read through, you'll find the Son was actually the agent by which God created. He was the means, by, the, the Spirit of God was the actual agent. But God, God's will was to create the earth, or recreate it, according to some theories. And God the Son was responsible for it. So, so God delegates His authority to the Son. All right. Now what's happened is the next thing is delegated to His man. But it's the Father's authority that goes down the line to the man. So the man in the earth is exercising God the Father's authority. 
Everybody with me? Okay. Now, look at the end of verse 19. It says, And whatever Adam called the living creature, that was its name. Listen to this. God's the creator of all this, but because God's given man the authority to name them, God has to submit to that authority. So God will call those animals what the man named them to be. That's important to understand, because once God delegates this authority, He cannot take it back, or He's violated it. Romans 11.29 says, The gifts and callings of God are without repentance. That means when God gives a gift, He will not change His mind and take it back. So, regardless of what Adam's going to do with it, it's his to run with. That's important to understand when we're in a position of authority. Because if you delegate authority with the understanding that if they mess it up, you're going to take it right back to them, then you've really not delegated the authority. I don't want to get into this. You can take the course on spiritual authority because they get into it in much more detail. But when authority is delegated, with it go two other things. Responsibility goes with it. And accountability goes with it. Well, if you delegate the authority, but then you're going to take it back if the person doesn't do it just right, then you've not completely given them responsibility. You've still exercised responsibility because you said, if you mess it up, I'm going to pick the mess up. We do this with our kids. We try to teach them responsibility and authority. We give it to them, and then if they, if they struggle a little bit, we take it back from them and say, well, I'll fix it up for you. How are they going to learn how to handle it if they don't have the responsibility? Then don't give it to them until you're confident they can handle it. This is important to understand. All right. Let's go now. Unfortunately, the story doesn't end there. Let's go to chapter 3. Now, the serpent was more cunning than any of the beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman... Has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Stop there. Because we skip over this and we don't understand something. Who had God given authority in that garden? Adam and 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 his wife, Eve. She's now separated from him. In a court of law, in a trial, in order for you to speak in the trial... You need two things. You need what's called standing, which is the legal right, because you have an interest in the case, to be speaking at all in that courtroom. And the second thing you need is the judge's permission to open your mouth. So even though I'm a lawyer attending, uh, representing one of the one of the one of the parties, I can't just go up to the judge and say, judge, here's what I think. I have to ask permission to approach the bench and permission to speak. Why? Because the judge has the authority and I can only exercise my right to speak to the extent that he grants me that authority and permission to speak. I went through that because you've got to understand this. God did not give the serpent a right of voice to speak in the garden. He delegated to his man 
the authority of the garden. Therefore, it was within the man's responsibility to exercise judgment about who to give permission to speak to and who not to give permission to speak to. And what Satan is after, first of all, before anything else, is the right to speak into the situation. And when Adam let him speak, he gave him permission and standing and voice in that garden. That's an important lesson for us, especially us husbands and fathers. You have not only the right but the responsibility to choose what gets spoken into your family and into your household. Remember when we learned renewing the mind and I taught you about the the guy in the brown uniform that came to the door and went ding-dong and the door opens and you don't have to just take your hands and accept whatever package is it and sign for because what we do is we take the package, sign for it, and then open it up to find out what it is. It's too late, it's yours. You don't have to accept anything that comes from your door from, from, that's a del- from a delivery person. You have the right to say, you have the right to not even open your door to them. In fact, we learned you have a responsibility to discern what's in the package and what it's purpose for before you ever open the door and let it in. Remember the story of my brother's frogs? Loose in the house? Well, that was a good lesson. Those of you who weren't, you need to get the series on renewing the mind. We can't go back over that. But that's what's going on here. Adam has the responsibility and he has the authority to back it up. You know, just because somebody calls you doesn't mean you have to answer. Just because somebody sends you an email doesn't mean you have to respond. Every once in a while I get people just sending me emails waiting for me to respond and I don't answer them. Now, not for many of you, but people that are they're either trying to pick a fight or pick some kind of debate over something, and if they were sincerely looking for an answer, then I would engage with them, but they're not. They're trying to prove to me why I'm wrong and they're right. And they've already made up their mind, so there's no purpose to it, so why even answer? I don't have to answer. There's nothing in my, under, my agreement with the church that says I've got to answer every email, every phone call. In fact, there's some things you have a responsibility to keep out of your hearing and out of your eyesight. And I'm dwelling on that because Adam didn't exercise the authority. This is where he first fell or first made a mistake. He didn't exercise authority He didn't, and, and, and Eve didn't because she answered him. The moment she answered him, he had permission to speak. It's kind of like somebody coming into the court of a king and standing there. And remember the story of, of, of Esther? And Mordecai comes and says, you need to go plead with the king. She says, you don't understand, it's not my day to go there. And if I go and he's not pleased with me, it's going to be ultimate. <laughs> but what would happen is if, if I had pleasure with him, he would point his scepter towards me and now I had permission to approach him and to speak. And Adam and Eve gave the serpent permission to speak, and when they gave him permission to speak by answering him, they gave him standing in the, in the standing, a right to be there. A trespasser, they gave him the right to be there. It's as if somebody broke into your house and you get into a theological debate with them. 
about whether they have a right to be there. The fact that you're even discussing it with them. Okay. And of course what happens is the next thing is they're enticed and then they choose. They weren't forced to because nobody could force them to. They chose to disobey God's commandment. Listen to that. And just as importantly, to obey Satan's command. Now Satan's command was a little more subtle, but it was a command. They chose to submit themselves under his authority and remove themselves from under God's line of authority. Romans 6.16 says, To whom you present yourself slave to obey, you are their slave. 2 Peter 2.19 says, By whomever a person is overcome, by him he is also brought into bondage. So here's the next slide. Now what we have is the line of authority goes from the father to the son to the man, but the man has turned and he's delegated that authority to Satan and has submitted himself under Satan, so man's authority no longer comes directly from God. It now comes through Satan. Let me give you some scriptures to back this up. From this point on until today, until Jesus comes back, Satan has the authority on the earth that God originally gave to Adam. That was what was at stake here. God cannot pull it back just because Adam turned around and delegated it to Satan. From this point on, Satan is referred to in the Bible as the God of this earth. 2 Corinthians 4.4 refers to him as the God of this age or the God of this world. 2 Corinthians 4.4. 1 John 5.19 says, this is Jesus speaking, we, hold, we know that the whole world is under the sway or the authority of the wicked one. That's John 5, 1 John 5.19. That's first of all, John, not Jesus speaking that. John 12.31. Jesus says, Now the ruler of this earth will be cast out. The ruler of this world will be cast out, and he's found no place in me. Oh, excuse me, that's John 14. That's John 12.31 says, The ruler of this earth will be cast out. John 14.30 says, The ruler of this earth, world is coming. That means he's coming to get him, Jesus, because this was right before the garden. But he's found nothing in me. Turn with me to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. This is Jesus. He's been come to the Jordan River. He's been baptized by John the Baptist. The Holy Spirit has descended upon him, filled him, and the first thing the Spirit does is lead him into the wilderness, verse 1. And Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being tempted 40 days by the devil. In those days he ate nothing, and afterwards, when it ended, he was hungry. And now the first temptation is of what to eat. Look down at verse 5. Then the devil, that's Satan, taking him up to the high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. 
And the devil said to him, All this authority I will give you with their glory, for it has been delivered unto me, and I give it to whom I wish. Back up a second. When was it delivered to him? When Adam gave it to him. And now Satan is offering to give it to Jesus. Stop here. First point. This cannot be a temptation to Jesus if Satan didn't have the authority to give him. Because he's not going to fool Jesus. So if Satan did not have that authority to give to Jesus, that would not have been a temptation. Why would it, could it be a temptation? Because what did Jesus come to do? Part of what he came to do was to get back the authority that God, the man had given to Satan. And here's what's at stake. Because if, if Jesus had bowed his knee, he would still have his line of authority coming through Satan. But that would have been a much easier way to do it. What's at stake here is Satan is coming to him, saying, look, basically, I know why you're here. I know you're here to take back the authority that was legally... See, he legally had it. He didn't cheat Adam out of it. He, he deceived him, but Adam as a free act of his will. See, the woman was deceived, it says in 1 Timothy, but Adam sinned. Romans chapter 5 talks about sinning after the likelihood or similitude or example of Adam. Eve was fooled. She was deceived. Hers was out of ignorance. Adam knew what he was doing. He chose to go with his wife and disobey God. His eyes were open. He knew exactly what he was doing. He made a choice to follow her. Don't worry about it. I'll get it back. He made a choice to follow her. And so when it talks about sinning after the example of Adam, it means breaking a known commandment. And so Jesus, Satan, had that authority because Adam exercised his free will and gave it to him. So Satan could legally stand there and tell Jesus, I have the authority in the earth but I know why you've come. You've come to get it back. You don't need to go to the cross. You don't need to suffer. You don't need to go through all this stuff. I'll give it to you. I'll give you what you came for. All you've got to do, and nobody's looking, we're on top of a mountain. All you've got to do is just stand before me and just bow bow your knee. It doesn't have to stay there long. It just has to... the ground and I'll give you the authority and I believe he would have what's the big deal we just saw what the big deal was we're going to see it again if I can get this to work something went off back there anyway you remember the chart All right. The point is this. If Jesus had accepted his offer, then Jesus would have had authority in the earth, but he would have derived his authority from Satan. And he came 
to get it back. All right. Let's go on. Can you give me another minute or so here? All right. Because I don't want to leave in this point. Okay. Jesus is also known as the second Adam because he came back as a man with the life of God in him with a commission to obey God where the first man disobeyed God. 1 John 3.8 says, He came with a purpose to destroy the works of the evil one. Philippians 2. Let's turn quickly there. Philippians 2. Verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which also is in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. In other words, he was entitled to consider himself at the same level of God because he was God. That's what that's saying. But he made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a bondservant, becoming in the likeness of men. He became flesh. He took on flesh. Being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself to become obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So Jesus, when he came to this earth, John 1, verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was God, and the Word was with God. He be, in the verse 2 says, and he, and, and he was God. Verse 14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. When he did that, he left in heaven all the glory and all the authority that he had as the second person of the God. That second one down there, the Son, he left that authority in heaven and came here to become a man. Took on flesh to become a man. And still God, but a man. But he left all that there. All right. And he walked around in this earth and every time he was tempted to disobey just as the first Adam was, this second Adam refused the temptation and obeyed. He walked through life without any advantage and wherever, he perfectly obeyed the will of God and the commandment of God at every turn, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, for 30, 33 plus years. So he was obedient where the first Adam was disobedient. And we just saw the testimony that although the God of this world is coming, He's found no place in me. He's found nothing in me He can get a hold of because I've never given Him anything as the first Adam did. All right. And of course we know He went to the cross out of obedience. He was raised from the dead. But because He was obedient, He could establish a second line of authority on the right. So now he's walking on the earth under authority that doesn't come through the man. He's come as a second man and he has his authority directly from the Father and the Son. Everybody following me? So when he exercises authority on the earth, it's not flowing through Satan. This is why he can speak to the demons and they have to leave. Because in fact, Jesus said in Luke ten nineteen, Behold, I give you authority over Satan and over all the power of the enemy so that nothing shall any way hurt you. He couldn't do that if his authority came through Satan. He would have to do it by Satan's permission. In fact, that's what the Pharisees said. You're doing these things because Satan's giving you permission to do them. 
He says, no, 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 you're of your father, the devil. And then he says, a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. In other words, if I'm doing these works because Satan has given me the authority, then he's trying to destroy his own kingdom. No, he's saying, my authority doesn't come through Satan. My authority is a reconnection with the original source of authority. Following me? All right, okay. And as a result, he's operating, that's where his authority came from. Because he was obedient, God could establish a new line of authority, and that's why Satan was trying to get Jesus to derive his authority through Satan. And the victory over his, the, the victory by the cross paid for all now who come to him. See, when you become saved, you now are transferred from the dominion of darkness, which is the left-hand side, into the kingdom of his beloved son. You are now joined to Christ. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. And when you're joined to Christ, your authority now is derived through Christ, whose authority is derived back again through the original source. This is why you're so threatening to Satan. This is why he wants you to be convinced that you're still under his authority and to be afraid of him. But notice, it's still delegated authority. So God cannot move in this earth unless he moves through somebody that's wearing flesh and blood because he gave that authority to man. Jesus came and won back a, line of, a new line of authority and gave it to his church, to his man, to you and me. And that bottom line salvation says when we move from being a fallen man to being a member of his body, we transfer lines of authority. And we're now under his line of authority. And that's why Jesus says in, in Matthew chapter 28, chapter 28 in the Great Commission, after he'd been raised from the dead and he had won his victory, he said, all authority, all authority in heaven and earth has been given unto me and then what he says you go forth and make disciples of all men baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit the authority that the church has is to carry out that commission but we have all the authority of heaven that's why Jesus gave the church his name in my name you shall do these things. And in Acts chapter 3, the first thing they do is exercise that authority and there's a man lame from his birth and they approach him at the gate beautiful and he's begging alms and Peter says, silver and gold I don't have you but what I have I give you in the name of Jesus, in the line of authority I have. Rise and walk! And they exercise that authority and the man who'd never walked found strength in his legs and stood up jumping and leaping and praising God. God, if we're, God were to act in this earth without one of us asking Him, He has to jump over that line of authority and take it away from us. This is why God needs us to open our mouth and speak, just as He needed Jesus to speak into situations, and Jesus taught His disciples to speak into situations. He needs us, because when we speak, we're exercising His 
authority provided we're doing it according to His will. And I'll end with this because it's late. Matthew chapter 8, verse 5, a centurion comes to Jesus. He's got a servant that's a home paralyzed. He says, Master, my servant is a home paralyzed and suffering terribly. And before he could tell Jesus what he wanted, Jesus said, I'll come and heal him. And the centurion said, stop. No, 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 no. That's not what I was going to ask you. I'm not worthy for you to come under my home. But not only that, you don't need to. He said, I recognize something about you. I recognize that like me, because I'm an officer, that you're somebody both under authority and in authority. Therefore, you don't need to come to my house and lay hands on him. All you have to do, because you're in that line. See, Jesus, the second Adam, is under authority. And he's also in authority. There's a line of authority that flows from the source of absolute power down through that sun, out of him, into situations. And the centurion says, I recognize authority because I'm also somebody that's under authority above me and I exercise authority to the people that are under me. Therefore, all you've got to do is exercise the authority by giving a command here and my servant will be healed there. And Jesus stops and says, I've not seen such great faith in all of Israel. Jesus equates faith with a recognition of authority. But notice you've got to be in the line of authority. You can't be out there on your own exercising it. You can't be under Satan trying to exercise it because his authority is the authority of the God of this world. And the hope that this world has is that Jesus has reestablished a line of authority and given it to the church to exercise it. And most of the time we spend our time submitted underneath Satan's authority when we've already been delivered from it. Jesus said his, his role for the church is he's given us that authority. I don't have time to get into the details until his enemies are made his footstool. Where is enemies? It's on the left-hand side. Until the authority on the right-hand side of the church has been exercised over the God of this world to redeem out of this world everyone that belongs to the kingdom of God. And that's what we're here to do as a church. And he's given us the authority to do that. But he needs us to exercise it. He can't exercise it without us. And that's why he needs us to pray for the lost. That's why he needs us to give him permission to move in this earth because he delegated that authority to man. And Jesus went through all of that to earn it back for us. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you, Lord. Help us to grasp what we've seen tonight and what we've heard tonight, that we may take it seriously, Lord, and understand how critical it is that we learn how to pray effectively because your will in this earth is dependent upon your people learning how to pray effectively. Awaken us to how desperately you need us to learn that. That We don't have to convince you, you're convincing us. And so, Lord, for the grace to do that, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.